Hey everybody, this is RJ Thompson with a new episode of the City View Podcast. I'm sitting in the Dean's Conference Room in the College of Creative Arts and Communication here at Youngstown State University, and joining me today is Bill Bodine, um, a very accomplished musician, which he'll uh, detail um, throughout the, the conversation today. Um, how you doing, Bill? So far, so good. So but I'm fun. getting tired. I've been in town for a, a week for a number of reasons. Uh, you know, involved with YSU because of the work I did here mm-hmm. as a student and the work I've done since then. And also I have a, I've established a nonprofit called Creative Bridge Coalition. What we do, we have a mission to bring music-based programming to kids with special needs. Uh, so we wanted to, we do it in Los Angeles and then we do it in Youngstown, Ohio. Now we're going to expand to, to Nashville. Uh, so that brings me to town, brings me to Youngstown quite a bit to help with the new classes, help any with any training, coordinate the efforts. But mainly this this trip was to fundraise for uh, the classes that we want to put at Cheney High School and, mm-hmm. and the ones at Fairhaven, and we have some in Columbiana County. So uh, what we do by for fundraising is usually a music-based fundraiser. And this, the last two years, we've done a concert downtown at the Dior titled Valley of the Divas. And what it was or is is a concert that features exclusively talented people either from the Mahoning Valley or with a lot of connection to the Mahoning Valley. So we want to showcase the city's talents. Uh, And they're remarkable. I mean, our headliner was Maureen McGovern, who's had just a tremendous career, accomplished a lot. And now she's about my age. She's into giving back. She does a lot lot of great stuff. But we had Janice Jones, who's local. uh, She does almost exclusively gospel music for us. Uh, Leanne Binder, who's a great, truly a great rock singer. And I'm saying great by Los Angeles standards. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, I've been in the business a long time. been a professional musician since uh, 1965, I guess. Wow. Yeah, so it's it's been a long time. Uh, so we have Leanne, we have Maureen Collins, who does a lot of work with children in the theater down here. But she's just she's one of those talents that could read the phone book and it would be entertaining to you. You know what I mean? <laughs> she just has a charisma. She has a delivery. She can connect with the with the soul of the story. Uh, so she's really really got that gift. Uh, and this year we brought in uh, as our imported feature act was Sugar Jones. And Sugar Jones uh, was a finalist on The Voice uh, last season or season before. Uh, her connection to the Mahoning Valley is her father grew up in Briar Hill, and he's a great oh, wow. singer. So I know he, he and I moved to Los Angeles together in 73. So uh, she's back here a lot to visit her grandma and her family. So uh, I asked her if she would do it because she has it's somewhat you know, removed connection. But mm-hmm. still, it's it's... The, it's blood, you know. It's blood, that, yeah. and it's Mahoning Valley blood. It's Youngstown blood. Yep. And that it doesn't leave you. No, it, it doesn't, and uh, it, gladly it doesn't. I mean, Youngstown has always been uh, a tough place to play. You know, they used to. There was something written at one of the theaters downtown. You think you're good, play Youngstown. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's always been a tough city to play, tough crowd, for whatever reason. I mean, different different opinions on what the reason might be. But consequently, we've had some very, very talented people come out of this area. Uh, some have gone on. Right now, the guys that come to mind, uh, Ralph Lalama is in New York as a jazz tenor player. Uh, 
Sean Jones is a, a huge jazz artist now. I mean, the guys, and he's from Warren. Mm-hmm. Went to all these guys went to the YSU uh, jazz program right here. They're products of that. Uh, who else? Oh, Bob DePiro, who's a huge songwriter in Nashville. I mean, this guy tells he can tell you how many he has multiple number one hits every month. Wow! I mean, it's it's just his his career. It, it's crazy successful. He was playing guitar in the jazz band, you know what I mean? So uh, there's there's quite a few people that, that you can go to uh, that have a history. You can look to their history to not just the Mahoning Valley, but in my world, there's a lot of connection directly to YSU mm-hmm. and, and particularly the jazz program. So uh, I, I'm immersed in, in Youngstonians one way or the other. <laughs> um. And and music seems to be the the, the, the resonating theme, the co- the core uh, amongst it all. Uh, I, I'm curious about uh, your background here at YSU. Could you talk a little bit about uh, about your relationship to the university? And yeah, I grew up on the south side. I went to Wilson High School, and uh, because I had a, a, was in a local band, a, ro- a soul band in 1968. This was 68, 69. Uh, I didn't really want to leave town. You know, I, mm-hmm. I had we were making good money, and and also I was a trumpet major, and one of the best instructors was here at YSU. His name was Asoto Pellegrini. So I came to study up here with Pelly, and uh, this was like I said, it was a uh, fall of '68, and by the end of that year, spring of that year, uh, this guy shows up on campus uh, an older older guy his name was Tony Leonardi and he was a bass player uh, and he had just got off the road with, from Woody Herman's band Woody Herman's one of these big big bands that were still active back in the day that's Ooh. where jazz that's where you uh, as you came out of school when you were a young player you wanted to get on the road with Woody or Buddy Rich's band Stan Kenton all these that was your next training ground and then that mm-hmm. would lead you hopefully to uh, employment in New York or Los Angeles or Vegas or where mm-hmm. a lot of guys actually would get off the road and go to Vegas and play in the showrooms there. It was a lot of live music. So anyhow, Tony Leonardi shows up here on the campus and myself and a guy named Phil Wilson, who's another trumpet player, we said, man, this guy could probably get us some music from Woody and then we could put a jazz band together here because at the time it was really only uh, what we call legit music, you know, more like classical music. Yeah. So we wanted to have a more contemporary thing going. So we bugged Tony and bugged Tony and bugged Tony until finally said, all right, all right, all right, all right. I'll get you some <laughs> charts. So he got us a handful of charts, and we put the guys together uh, in what used to be this, uh, I can't remember the name of the hall. It was down by what was Jones. It was a, there was a little uh, auto mat, you know, it's like cafeteria type thing. This was yeah. about that's where they used to rehearse the band. And so we got some guys up there, and... Uh, started trying to get it going you know it so no one really knew what to do you know uh okay somebody counted it off we started playing tony was there and he was playing bass for us and uh he said no it's this tempo so he counted it off and we messed it up and someone else counted off so finally tony just stood up said all right here's what we got to do and that that (laughs) moment he became the head of the jazz program (laughs) <laughs> That's just how it happened organically. He mm-hmm. was the only guy that knew what to do. 
And uh, so we said, okay, you know, whatever. And then he helped uh, put that band, make that band sound like a band because of his experience. His mm-hmm. experience. Uh, it was really successful. I mean, as far as student uh, students embracing it, uh, it was really, really popular. There was a lot of energy and excitement about it. And uh, oh, we did it again the next year. Then I went off on the road and left the program here and then... And lo and behold, Tony had turned it into a curriculum, shaped it into a curriculum that became popular. It really helped the draw to the music school, uh, and it it turned to be turned out to be quite a, a valuable piece of curriculum or, or developed curriculum for for YSU. Uh, Meanwhile, I was off on the road. I'm lost track of whether we're talking about my career now or why issue. <laughs> we're uh, just so blend, yeah, it blends well, together. Okay. Well, <clears throat> meanwhile, I go off on the road with. Um, it's all about you today. Maureen, okay. <laughs> my wife thinks that every day. She tells me, and it's all about you, isn't it? Uh, so anyhow, I go off on the road with Maureen McGovern, and that's great. And I'm seeing, you know, I'm out of Youngstown. I, we go straight to New York for rehearsals, and it's my my eyes are big. It's is mind blowing mm-hmm. uh, what's going on, but yet <clears throat> I find I have the skills I have. Once I settle down from just my natural, you know, you're going to be apprehension, right. uh, anxiety, nervousness, a lot yeah. Of, yeah. Once you get over that, I I can hang. I could play with these guys. You know, I can hang with the heavies. What I perceived as heavies at, at the time, and again, it's because of the level of play that goes on in Youngstown. Mm-hmm. Uh, we weren't allowed to just kind of play at it, especially when Tony, when I worked with Tony. Tony was from Rochester, New York. He had played pro. You know, it's like we, I called the equivalent of playing pro ball. He played in the pros on Woody's mm-hmm. band. I grew up with guys that were hardcore. He didn't allow it to slide. And it was so valuable because that's what separates professionals from amateurs is the detail, mm-hmm. the, the, the attention to the detail, and the willingness to address the details and to get command of the details of whatever it is you're doing. Uh, that's how you can spot, in, in, I think, in any any of the arts for sure, the difference between the, the mediocre players and, and the guys that are real serious The about. self-editing and the critique. Exactly. Yeah. Listen to yourself, uh, <clears throat> getting the physical technique together, get, getting the interpretive technique together. Uh, so in New York, I'm working these guys, and hey, it's working out. So I had a great time with, it was a short tour. And then I ended up in Los Angeles. Maureen, I went with Maureen to uh, Los Angeles. She was up for a Grammy. Mm-hmm. So I said, Los Angeles, I said, man, this is it. And I came back to town and gathered my thoughts and said, I want to play pro ball. You know, I want to be a professional musician. Time to level up. Yeah, yeah. and where am I going to do it? Uh, at the time, this is 73, New York was working and Los Angeles was working. Nashville was still very much a, a country music. I mean, it was real live country music. Mm-hmm. And I... I was it wasn't my thing, and plus there wasn't a whole lot of work there. It wasn't it right now? It's huge right. because they also do the pop music down there. Well, at the time I made the choice for the West Coast based on a number of factors. Number one, they have all kinds of work coming out. They do a lot of film, a lot of television, a lot mm-hmm. of road tours were leaving from the West Coast, and a lot of records. And this was the irresistible part: they didn't have any snow. <laughs> you know, by that time, I, how many pairs of shoes have you ruined? How many pants are wet at the bottom? Yeah, I just right. couldn't take it anymore. So uh, I opted for Los Angeles. So my buddy, Joe Pizzullo, who uh, we had been in a band together, became real good friends. He and I both uh, 
he decided he wanted to make a go of it too. So we uh, loaded up his Honda Civic and uh, drove to, to Los Angeles. We had a friend out there in Fullerton, which is south of Los Angeles. It's in Orange County. Mm-hmm. And he allowed us to crash at his place. So we crashed there and just trying to figure out what do we do now. Uh, so we took like daytime jobs uh, just to keep f- literally food in our mouths. Right. Because I showed up with $68, which doesn't give you a lot of options. No, no. <laughs> so, so I had to get to work right away. I can see the, um, you know, the, your budget, you know, certainly giving you handcuffs, but also being out there and experiencing all these new things being very liberating. So you kind of got... Uh, it, was, it, was, it was really exciting. Yeah, it was really exciting. You, I always, for the first couple of years out there, I always felt like some, they were having meetings that I wasn't invited to. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's like, I felt like I was really on the... You're not a part of the club yet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so eventually... Uh, I found my way into, uh, there was a music store, walked in there, and uh, they had an ad up for a bass player for a club band. So I took that and started in clubs and just worked around that way uh, and then was driving into Los Angeles. They had, in those days, this was pre-internet, so the way to network, uh, they had a musician's contact service. What it was were people that were looking for bass players would submit that, uh, a car, fill out a card in, at this uh, place, it's right. one, one location. And then people that wanted work would pay a fee to have access to those cards. And it was reasonable. So, yeah, like we're talking a $20 thing. Mm-hmm. So I was driving up there a couple days a week to see the cards, to call the people up, to go play auditions, and just driving around Los Angeles, you know, playing audition after audition after audition. Uh, most of them were dead ends in that they were just guys, you want the jam, you know? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But eventually, one of them was a real live uh, uh, career opportunity, and that was playing with guys that had been on Frank Zappa's band and uh, Don Ellis's band. So real accomplished musicians uh, that were already wired into the scene. So right. I, I got that audition, and these guys you know, got along with the guys, and so the, the drummer, Ralph Humphreys, who's still working in Los Angeles, very busy, started dragging me around to places and say, hey, sit in here. You know, and there were some, a couple of clubs that the studio guys would hang around and jam in at night. Mm-hmm. So I got to meet a lot of the guys, the, the working guys then, and become more part of the, of the community. Meanwhile, I was still earning my, my rent money playing nightclubs. Uh, I wasn't in the, making doing any sessions, any, right. any studio work yet. So... Uh, I was in uh, in nightclubs, and uh, I told a story yesterday about one of the funniest gigs, one of the last nightclub gigs I had was in uh, the lounge of a bowling alley, <laughs> and I played behind a uh, Neil Diamond impersonator. Okay. You know, so we were playing these Neil Diamond songs. This is stuff that you never willingly do. You know, prior to that, I had never played a Neil Diamond song and was proud of it. <laughs> but, you know, this is reality. You know, right. When you're a working musician, uh, and I assume the art, all the arts are the same, you, there's two types of work. The work that covers the rent and the work that you hope someday will cover the rent. Right. You know, and this was, I was covering the rent. But the cool thing, you know, as word got out that there were some pretty good musicians on this gig, while this guy would sing... Uh, get get done with his medley of uh, 
Carolina was sweet, Carolina, yeah, yeah, stuff like that. Then he would sit down, and then we'd play jazz tunes and some of the tunes. So I, I met some really good players, like guys like Dave Benoit, you know, guys that went on to have big careers. And so it was really good networking for me to be on that gig. And eventually, uh, I got uh, a call to go. One of the friends I had made was a good drummer named Rick Slosser, and he had worked with Van Morrison. And eventually, he called me. And he said, hey, Van's looking for a, a, a bass player. And he wasn't going to do it, the, the tour with Van. So I went down to a Studio Instrument Rentals, which is this big rehearsal hall that has multiple rooms in it that mm-hmm. all, anybody with money would be rehearsing. So all, the, all your road acts would be there. And I went down and played with Van for a couple of days. But it was, he, he was... He's an unusual character. Yeah. So I've heard. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and at that time, uh, I uh, actually won't. I won't. I won't go too much into the details. Sure. He was auditioning drummers, and it was bizarre the way that he was doing it. It looked like I had the gig, although no one made it formal. Uh, and he was supposed to go to Europe for a European tour, but he was acting so uh, erratic uh, that. I really was wondering what was going on, so I went out into the hallway to have a drink of water on one of the breaks, and some Greg Matheson, a, a keyboard player, came up to me and said, hey, what are you doing here? I said, I'm, we're doing this Van Morrison thing. And he said, well, are you going to go out with him? And I said, well, yeah, it's kind of nutty. You know, I don't, th- I don't, I don't think he's going to make it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I didn't think he was in kind of shape that he was going to be able to last on the road. And I know that he had canceled a couple of tours before, and it's not necessarily drugs or alcohol. I can't, right. uh, but he does have some. He does have some uh, personality disorder that he has since gotten acknowledged and, and gotten under, yeah, uh, you know, in the care of someone and gotten proper medication. But at the time, he was pretty woo. So uh, I said, "Man, I I don't think I'm going to make it." So he said, "Greg said, well." I'm over here with Olivia Newton-John. You want to do that? I said, okay, when do you go? He said, Thursday. It was Tuesday. <laughs> I said, yeah, okay. Well, he said, come in for an audition. So I went in for an audition and got that and then went on the road with Olivia Newton-John. And then on that gig were guys that were farther up the food chain. As mm-hmm. far as if it were, imagine a spiral. And as you go, you come out of the nightclubs and you start doing good-paying road gigs. Right. And then you get hopefully some mediocre paying studio work and then you get better paying studio it's work. kind of the ladder you climb yes yeah for a musician's career yeah and it's like uh i, I always use the spiral analogy because it's like you're rotating and the world is everyone else's world is rotating and occasionally you align mm-hmm. the opportunity aligns with 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 your road you know with your motion and if you're prepared to walk onto to the next level. Uh, and then this comes back to preparation in Youngstown, playing under uh, demanding circumstances and demanding uh, expectations and high expectations in Youngstown allowed me to take care of a lot of the details of my playing so that when opportunity came, I was able to to qualify mm-hmm. for the opportunity. So again, it always allows me, thanks for my, the background, uh, in, in my beginnings here in Youngstown. Meanwhile, while I'm out there, this is uh, over the course of the years, and there's a, I have a list of people that I played with we can get into. Uh, there's some stories there. But meanwhile, back here in Youngstown, Tony Leonardi is turning this uh, ad hoc jazz band into a curriculum and uh, a very <coughs> popular one. And uh, they're getting great music students. They're getting great energy. They're playing out a lot to 
to recruit, you know, allow people to be excited by right. uh, jazz, which still, you know, I, there's something about jazz. I just, I dig playing it. Uh, but it was good. It was good recruitment. It was good for the arts because you're spreading this noise around to people that perhaps don't get to to hear it. When you hear it live, it's much more invigorating than mm-hmm. you know than a recording. So he's back here doing the hard work of that. And next thing I know, I guess about thirty years went by. <laughs> you and, blinked. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And I, yeah, you know, I came back from time to time when they were going to do. The, they put a recording studio here, and I met with Tony a bunch about that because I had built my own studio, but I knew a lot of guys mm-hmm. and knew something about uh, what mattered in in functional studios. So I was able to help with that. I would come back and talk about the business and what was going on, and how I got to where I was at that moment. Because mm-hmm. uh, that's one of the things that's hard to to teach uh, is the roadmap to work when you're out and freelance because it changes a lot over the course of years. Right. So if you're not out on the roads, uh, it's hard to help people understand what might make sense to do with Mm -hmm. their careers. Uh, I like this idea that, that I'm sort of formulating based on what you're saying of like these chance encounters you know, uh, essentially defining your career, and you don't know you don't know when they're going to happen, if they're going to happen at all. Uh, that that's very nerve wracking, I think, in some respects. Well, it, it can be yeah, in your dark moments. I mean, uh, uh, and and we do have those. Uh, there, uh, I used to quote yesterday from Tom Hanks. He said that. Uh, you have to be well prepared to get lucky. Mm-hmm. So there that's is, where I was going to go. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. there is something. The amount you can have a certain amount of control, uh, and what I think you can control is the preparation. Your your in my case, the art form that I know, your musicality. You can affect. You're, you have. You are the only person that can uh, affect the quality of your technique. Mm-hmm. Uh, the your ability to understand and play multiple styles. And the wider you become, a lot of guys feel that if they become wide with multiple genres, if you can play polka, well, that you won't play as good of whatever it is your main concern is, say for mm-hmm. the, the conversation jazz, which is crazy because I played polka gigs. And when I really hooked up and play, as a bass player, when I played great polka, I was playing it like funk. Mm-hmm. Because they're the same. For, for the bass player's chair, it's the same as far as where's the groove, how do I energize it, you know, when right. do you feel right? They're the same. So, so what happens as you learn these other genres, uh, you learn <clears throat> and play things that really enhance what your, what your concentration is supposedly, you know, your, your, what your favorite music is. Uh, so I yeah I was really happy to be playing all these genres and that, again the school forced me to do that I didn't I wouldn't willingly do that because right. you know in conversations I had yesterday say with with the kids over there they oh man they're complaining because they had to do this or do that and do that well that that's those are the colors right that, that you know in your Crayola box. I mean, if you never do purple, you're not going to have a purple. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's just... You have that. to diversify. You have to. Yeah. That, yeah. Those are colors that you 
don't have, you know, and you don't want, necess- you don't think you want them. But boy, lo and behold, someday you got to have that purple. <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I hate purple, but boy, I got to use it here. Uh, so, uh, I, I sorry, I just got sidetracked. No, that's how that's how that. you get that preparedness, mm-hmm. and you know that aligns with those chance encounters. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a question. Uh, so I'm not music faculty. Certainly, a, a music a music enthusiast, which I'll talk about momentarily. But um, I'm curious, from your perspective, um, what do you think music students now are really focused on? Like, what do you think their goals are specifically uh, upon graduation? Are they just wanting to just play music or and and freelance, or are they looking for some? Some very specific type of career path. I don't. I haven't had those conversations, so I have to assume everybody wants to work. You know, that's mm-hmm. that's what you when you graduate, you want to. Okay, I, I want to apply what I've learned, which means you want to work in in the in the world. So then the question is, how does that happen? Right. <laughs> how do I work? Uh, The reason I ask, you have uh, a lot of different experiences that, you know, while they have one point of origin, um, you know, you've branched out. You have uh, the TV and film background, and you've got the, the freelancing and live performances and touring. Um, I don't know if if our students or music students in general say, like, well, I want to compose music for TV and film, and that's all I want to do. Um you know, do they, how do they get to that particular goal? I mean, I feel like a lot of, a lot of them have to have that diverse experience to understand what they maybe want to do and what, well, I think not it's, what they want to do. Yeah, I think it's inevitable yeah. that in the course of just trying to pay the rent, you're going to take, say yes to work that you didn't think you were going to say yes to. And then mm. that becomes the broadening of your, of your, Playbook. I mean, you just have to say yes. <laughs> you have to say yes yeah. a lot. Don't be afraid to say yeah. yes. Uh, strangely enough, and I was mentioning this to my sister who used to, to teach up here. She taught, uh, I think, sociology. Uh, yesterday, there were a number of questions that reflected the anxiety of students. Fear of what's going to happen. My stomach's. Uh, <laughs> fear of what's going to happen. I don't think the mic picked it up. Okay, good. Uh, <laughs> When 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 they get out of here, and right, let me let me talk about that because uh, I think I think it's a, I think it's an important issue. Uh, I had one woman yesterday who's a senior. I, th- I think in photography we were doing a Q and A, and she's she had a real fear. She was fear. It was fear of of of, of failure, mm-hmm. and she was she seemed to have. I didn't hear the question. It. it Clearly, but seemed to have a real. She was worried about it. How how do you overcome this fear so you can move forward? Uh, and there, were, I was with two other panel guests, and they had different answers than than I do. But since I'm the only one on, on the podcast, you'll get to hear mine. <laughs> uh, and I said to her, I said, "Look, we're all we're all scared mm-hmm. almost every time that we're." Uh, going on stage every time I'm in a new situation I'm apprehensive I'm anxious I'm fearful that's natural that's part of 
the package. You can't be in the arts and think that it's you're going to pack a lunchbox and go to work and have nothing upset you. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just when you're in the arts, you're anxious and you're furthermore not are you just anxious, maybe as anxious as the guy who's going to work at GM. But you are more aware of how anxious. You can feel it more. And that's why you're drawn to the arts. You mm-hmm. feel differently. You feel, you sense, you smell things that other people don't smell. Right. In yourself, you you sense uh, the, the danger, you sense danger, you sense happiness. Everything, you sense more. That's why the arts attract you. That's that's the arts calling you. You've yep. been made that way. So you've been if, summoned. Ju- yeah, just yeah. You just accept the package, and the package is that you're going to be more fearful, more anxious, uh, more highs, more lows, uh, and accept the package and learn how to ride the pony. Mm-hmm. Okay, do your work, but also learn how to keep yourself in control. Keep yourself as stable as you can. You know, we talked about Van earlier. Van uh, is a tremendous artist, but he's emotionally unstable, mm-hmm. uh, and his struggle, as is with, with a lot of people with bipolar, uh, who are bipolar, is the medication doesn't allow them to feel the way right. the exaggerate in a, the exaggerated way we feel as artists so finding the right medication is essential and eventually I, from what I understand Van did uh, but to future artists out there I just accept the fact that that's there don't justify I mean that doesn't give you right to rage at people and, right. and act like an idiot uh, you have a, you have to settle yourself down uh, so that you can do the work, you know, and just the other thing too is put one foot in front of the other and do the work. Turn mm-hmm. out work, finish it. Don't do the same piece of work. Don't keep rewriting it. For right. Pete's sakes, put a period and get it out there because it's supposed to express you of today, not you forever. Put a period on it, and boom, that's you for April 2017. Let's move on to May yep. with a new project and get it going. Finish work. Get work out there. Uh, it's never, ever, ever going to be perfect because you're going to be a different artist in two months when you look back and you're going to say, no matter what it is, right. you could have painted the Mona Lisa and you're going to look back and go, oh, man, I should have made her smile. Mm-hmm. Different, you know, it was, you're gonna have that's just because that's what we're that's the goal. Hindsight is, is a part of our torture, <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, it is. But, but we've got to evolve, yeah. you've got to allow yourself, you've got to evolve, you got to move on and accept that whatever you produced last month and two months ago and two years ago, you're gonna say, ah, that's uh, you know, mm-hmm. you have to keep things fresh and keep it exciting for yourself, otherwise, your your synapses they're not gonna fire, yeah. And you know, the uh, the idea of challenge, and, and I'm so glad you brought up the the, the phrase fear of failure. Um, every single student in this building experiences that, even like you said, after they graduate. Um, and I, I think that's a good thing because you're listening. You know, you're listening to the situation and your your position in that situation and the expectations placed on you that, you know, if you can control it, you can succeed, so on and so forth. But uh, one of the things that I encourage with my students is 
failure. Like you're here to make your mistakes, make lots of them, embrace that, listen to what you're doing right, what you're doing wrong, and then let that inform your perspective and your aesthetic as, as an artist or even in general as a creative. Because that unique voice, however it's formed, is going to lead you on to some greater things, especially if your voice is particularly unique. Um, and, you know, we deal with uh, a lot of self-confidence issues that are tethered to that fear of failure. And, you know, it's you have to find this balance between um, raising up that self-esteem and still encouraging the failure, but not letting failure completely destroy um, you know, one's uh, respect for themselves. And know? for some reason, yeah. if you can have 98 people pat you on the back and say, boy, you sounded great. And two people, you hear them talking in the corner about, uh, <laughs> that's what you'll yeah. remember. You, you yep. remember the bad criticism. And again, that's part of the package of being the artist. We're extremely sensitive to criticism. But also, that gets under our skin it's okay because you listen to what they say and you have to give it maybe maybe there's something to that and you re-inventory mm-hmm. that that part of your performance or that part of your playing and uh, just to see well yeah okay okay all right I'll work on that you know mm-hmm. uh, so there, there's something to be but it's it's just funny you just Shrug off, yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm great. Yeah, you just take that like it's just like nah, that's <laughs> yeah, complete BS, you know. And yeah, but yet one criticism, it zings you right to the heart, you know. So uh, for the for those listening, to give you some context, uh, Bill, one of the reasons you're in town is for the uh, President's uh, Gala, the Forming Futures exhibit at uh, at the the new uh, YBI office in the old Vindicator Building, and um, tonight, you know, there will be uh, students and faculty from, uh, <clears throat> pardon me, all four of our disciplines here in this college. And I can guarantee you, uh, listeners, that um, the faculty, the art faculty in particular, they'll be standing near or somewhere near their paintings and they'll be listening to mm-hmm. exactly the, uh, the feedback. Even though like these people are very well established uh, and at times celebrated artists and like some of the paintings you may see tonight are years old, you know, uh, they'll still be listening and, you know, you hear one, uh, criticism, constructive or otherwise, and they'll, they'll be thinking about it. They'll be processing that. Well, here's my picture in my head and, and here's, I'm modifying it. Um, just see how many brains are working tonight. Yeah. <laughs> um, I wanted I wanted to switch gears and um, uh, and again I don't I don't really know anything about you, so you'll have to pardon the the baseline questions. But uh, uh, what was the what was your your gateway instrument? What was the first? Well, I discovered or music music bit me when I was shortly after I started trumpet at age ten. Okay, uh, it was the classic public school here, Bennett School over on the south side. The music guy showed up, Bill Omice, with uh, clarinets and trumpets and I think trombones and, you know, the, an array. Uh, I had, I was from a, a family, my grandfather played cornet. Uh, 
my older sister was playing cornet. So she was like a year ahead of me or two years ahead of me. And so she taught me some basics, you know, what mm-hmm. button to push and all that. So I went into this thing and asked for the trumpet and sat down and played. And because I came in with some experience from my, you know, my sister told me how to do this. He thought I was pretty brilliant, you know. <laughs> so he had all this positive reinforcement for me. Uh, so, you know, that... That's always been my MO. I take the path of least resistance and the, mm. and the most accolades. <laughs> Hard not to. Those yeah, compliments exactly. feel good. Yeah. Oh, cookies and cake. Yeah, I'll go that way. Uh, so that was my beginning as trumpet. And then I played in Wilson High School, you know, the junior high and the senior high band. And Bill Omice, uh, the teacher there, had also taught uh, Soto Pellegrini, who was up here teaching. And uh, so I... I was offered a part scholarship to OSU, but as I had said earlier, because I had a, a soul band, we were playing around the area. Mm-hmm. And I was making money, and, and that was working. Uh, it made more sense for me to stay here, do that, and study with a guy that I really want, you know, really knew as a great teacher. So that was my uh, I, that was my developing love for music. You know, okay. the, the relationship was developed that that way. But early on. Uh, I remember the first year I played trumpet, I was walking home from Bennett School with a friend of mine, and I said, wait, I, I give, I'll be right back. And I took, I was holding my trumpet, and I went behind some trees and pulled it out and played it. And I remember what I played, I forget the name of it, but it's good, uh, F, G, A, B flat. So I remember the, the tune that I played, and I just had, and I rushed through it, and I put it back in the case. I had to play it. It was compulsion. Yeah. yeah, and and not in front of people for accolade, n- n- not to show. It was like behind these trees. I just had to experience that feeling, and I put it back in. I came out. My I'll never forget the look my friend gave me. Like, whoa, <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> but it was looking back on it now. I realized I was music called me. A friend of mine, John Beasley, who's a great keyboard player. He's, uh, I was lamenting that some my son doesn't practice enough. He said, Bill, music doesn't call all of us. Mm-hmm. And when it calls you, uh, when the, and I assume it's the same for the others, when it calls you, you just, you have, you would have to struggle to not go. Yeah. Yeah, you go. Uh, I, I haven't spent too much time thinking about it. I've spent most of my time just enjoying the ride. Mm-hmm. But it was that it was that kind of, that's a calling I had. I had to feel myself and hear myself play that thing. And now I, I have that again, because after all those years of playing bass, and then after that I was a writer. We, it, it, I don't know how much time you have, but uh, then I was, I had some opportunities to write and I wrote some songs and yeah, worked, wrote for Glenn Fry and Manhattan Transfer and, mm-hmm. and then, uh, Ended up scoring some stuff for television. Did a lot of commercials. After all that was done, I hadn't had enough. I decided to retire. This is six years ago, six seven years ago. I picked up the trumpet again, and I played it, and it still felt like that. And I said, "Then that's well, beautiful. I wonder <laughs> how good I can play this thing." And uh, and I've been playing trumpet again for the last six years. As a you know, when you retire, some guys play a lot of golf. I play a lot of trumpet, mm-hmm. so that's what I'm doing now. And it's some you know, in Los Angeles, guys say, "Man, why did you stop playing bass?" And I, I just the only answer is 
See, I don't have, I'm lucky enough that, you know, we, I did well enough in my career in, in investments that I, I have the income thing covered. So now I can play golf or the equivalent of. Yes. Trumpet is how I fell in love with music. Mm-hmm. And now I just get to have that relationship, you know, every day. I get, I get to have that feeling every day. So I'm pretty lucky. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that is, that, that's a, a really great story. I mean, especially that. I, I love the fact that you had to you went behind the tree to, to play. You know, I, I said this to Larry the other day. Uh, artists or musicians uh, don't create art or music because they want to. They do it because they have to. You know, it's in their blood, and you have to do it. Like you have to express, and you come out from that tree a completely different person. Yeah. And uh, it's very, it's a very renewing sort yeah, of sensation. Yeah, and when, actually, when you talk about it as rational human beings, it sounds goofy. I, oh, yeah. I understand. <laughs> I understand that. Uh, but what is that? I mean, you you write because it's in there. Yeah. Yeah, it's in there. And it, it, writing is particularly songwriting and stuff. And a, a lot of uh, uh, songwriters share the same thing. If you get to talk to Bob DePiro, it would be interesting to talk to him about this. When I sit down the writer's like, oh God, I hate this. Mm-hmm. I don't want to do this. Oh God. But sure enough, there'd be a deadline looming or something, or somebody coming over gonna write with, and this starts the process. And as soon as you get it going, then it's like, okay. And then it's fun, and then you're then you're experiencing the weird thing that's hard to hard to explain about what it feels like to be channeling. It's like channeling an energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it doesn't seem to come from within you. It right. seems to pass through you, and then you interpret, and then let it come gushing out. And that's it's pretty exhilarating. I absolutely understand that feeling. Okay. Absolutely, and you're right. That is hard to put into words, let alone for a rational uh, person to understand yeah. coherently. Um, well, we're kind of uh, wrapping up here on our time, but um, I wanted to uh, come back to uh, your nonprofit. Um, the students that you have, um, what what kind of instruments are they playing, and you know how's their reaction been to? Okay, well, uh, I'll explain. A Creative Bridge Coalition was founded with a mission to bring music-based curriculum to mm-hmm. kids with special needs. So uh, we came about the company. Uh, I retired at the same time. A friend of mine, Danny Marshall, who's from Hubbard, he was head of some. I think curriculum at Penn State, and he was retiring too. And we like working together. We're, mm. We've been friends for since nineteen. So we made friends here. I met him at YSU in '68. Uh, good friends. Well, he lives in uh, New England now. He lived in Pennsylvania at the time. He came to the West Coast, and we sat there saying, "Okay, we want to put a business together." That, of course, can't be brick and mortar because mm-hmm. we're on different coasts. Uh, what do you want to do? He said, yeah, I want to help. I want it to be music-based. I said, I want to help children. I want it to be a nonprofit. We, okay, then we just took the elements that we wanted it to include and tried to figure out, using the Internet, what there was a need for, what business it was like. And what we realized was that there are kids with special needs, autistic, uh, Asperger's, learning disabilities, that uh, respond to curriculum, uh, music-based curriculum. There is music-based curriculum out there that would be good for the kids, mm-hmm. and there are people that want to fund this. No one's putting it together. The expectation at the time was that the teachers or the schools where the kids went would go coordinate all this. Their hands are really full. Absolutely. So we provide 
we uh, started by providing that service. We wanted to vet the curriculums to see which ones would be effective with what groups. Uh, finding kids with special needs is easy. There's mm-hmm. un- sadly uh, just thousands and thousands and thousands of these kids. Uh, so the first project we did actually was here at the Rich Center. We, we, we uh, brought a curriculum to them called uh, TRAP, the Rhythmic Arts Project. And we found money for it and we trained uh, an instructor to to bring this. It's percussion based. So basically mm-hmm. we have the kids in, in a semicircle. It looks like a drum circle. Yeah. Uh, and it has some of... Yeah, it looks and sounds like a drum circle, but this is more structured in that. Uh, we recognize when... If I started playing, the kids started playing, okay, they're responding. That's a socialization development that they they follow. Mm-hmm. If I stop, they'll stop. So yeah. then if they lead, then they're learning how to lead. And their friends, everybody else in the school, is learning how to follow a peer. Mm-hmm. Again, socialization skills, recognizing when to lead, when to follow, when to start, when to stop, when to be quiet. So we deal with that. We deal with it in, in a structured fashion. There are a lot of nuances there, too, oh, yeah. that are so important for, for those those folks to learn that they don't typically get. So that... That's fantastic. And the energy, everybody's eager to hit a drum. You know what I mean? <laughs> but then we can integrate, we integrate colors. We have uh, uh, music that is color-based, quarter notes, where I guess they're reading the notes, but they're reading them because of their color. And they're mm. striking a drum. So it's color recognition, matching. Uh, they have a tactile rec- uh, tactile involvement with the, with the strike. Uh, we do numbers the same way. We, we can integrate... Uh, lessons from their cl- general classroom and bring it on to the drums. So it's a, it's a really flexible curriculum, uh, but it's been very effective. We develop uh, data collection tools so we can mm-hmm. see how we are impacting their lives and, wh- and how we're not. And so we can work on our curriculum or our presentation of a curriculum to make it more, more effective. What are the re- results telling you? The, without a doubt, uh, it raises, uh, it increases socialization, it's all about socialization skills, uh, colors. Uh, the, the main thing is that parents, because we ask the parents as well, and their general classroom teacher, uh, their attention, ability to pay attention is raised, their appreciation of music, attention to music and appreciation of music is, is raised. Uh, we're now studying how long short or long term these results are, uh, how transient the, the, the education is. And then, then we have to make decisions on if we want to try to, to uh, change that outcome. We're also involved with a, a different kind of scientific research at Vanderbilt. Mm-hmm. And that's a different curriculum with very young children uh, and a parent. And so, you know, we're, just, we're still acquiring knowledge before we're able to, I, I think, to make any statements, conclusive statements about what it is. For right now, it seems to be a good, positive interaction uh, that the kids enjoy. It gives them, uh, like I said, a, improves uh, socialization skills. And, uh, and everyone seems to really like it. Before you started uh, your nonprofit, did you ever think about music on this scientific level? Because it's a really interesting perspective, new perspective to look at what you're expressing. No, no I never. Yeah. Yeah, I was busy writing it and playing it. Yeah. So uh, only 
Yeah, this, this is this is a whole new adventure. I mean, uh, I thought that it would be okay. We do this; it's a nice part-time job, and your mm -hmm. retirement, and it's huge. I mean, we're so busy doing this. We're multi, we have things in you know, as I said, Los Angeles, right. Nashville, uh, Youngstown. Youngstown is our center right now. We, we, this is our home, for, and because it's always been our home. Yeah, right. Dan's from Hubbard. I'm from here. Linda Wellendorf. She's one of the principals. She's from the West Side. Patty Keenan's from Hubbard. So. Uh, yeah, this is this has become the hub of it. Well, uh, I, I want to leave you with a, a little uh, piece about myself, which I, I always like to relay to uh, musicians specifically. So I have uh, two half-brothers. Uh, my eldest uh, half-brother, Charlie, he has the artistic and the musical genes. So he can create a wonderful uh, sculpture. And he could also pick up a guitar and, and just play a beautiful song, whatever, right? My middle half-brother, um, Jason, he's prodigious. I mean, he can't, if I recall, he can't read music, uh, but he can hear it. I forget the specific name for uh, for that where he can just hear it in perfect, maybe it's perfect pitch. Perfect uh, pitch is yeah. identify, you can identify the, the actual note. Yes, he can do that. And... Um, if I recall, he just one day picked up a guitar and could play it, um, which don't, is ridiculous. Don't you just hate those? Guys? I know, I know, right? <laughs> but and, and I love him dearly. But uh, when you talked about uh, Van Morrison, I couldn't help but think about my brother because um, he has some of those challenges. So like he can do this, he can just do music amazingly well, just incredible. But he can't do some other things. Mm -hmm. He's since moved on to uh, flutes and actually making his own flutes. Wow. Yeah, they're they're in, incredible. Uh, so you know he's a incredible craftsman and a music player, a musician rather. But uh, and then me, I just got the art skills. That's it. <clears throat> um, the other day, um, my so I have a I have a, a twenty two month old. Her name's Amelia, and we're trying to wean her off of her pacifier. And I got to thinking about. Uh, the things that she likes to do activity-wise and trying to get her off of this pacifier. So she actually likes to dance and sing. Of course, her singing is incomprehensible. She, can't, she can only say a few words, um, but she's always moving, very, very active. So I bought her um, and I, I bought two flutophones. Two recorders. All right. Yeah, and I have no real music skills whatsoever, but um, she picked it up immediately, put it in her mouth, and just started blowing, and then ran around the house in circles doing this. And I figured, you know what? Uh, I may not have that skill set, but I think I made the right choice here. So uh, her and I will get to learn how to play the, the flutophone together, and uh, I'm really looking forward to that. Well, my, my uh, sympathies to your neighbors. <laughs> we walked down the neighborhood. We walked right down the street playing, and everyone came out. Yeah. They cheered her on. So, Oh, that's yeah. cool. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Well, I've enjoyed myself, and thank you for, uh, for having me. Absolutely. And uh, stay in touch. Looking forward to uh, what happens next. Thank you. Cool.